Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and joining me today as we begin a multi-part series is Taylor. But first, we have some new patrons to thank. So I want to give a big thank you shout out to Brandon, Hillary, and Jake. We hope you enjoy the bonus episodes on Patreon, and we really, really appreciate your support for the show. Uh, so with that, uh, I will just bring in Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Oh, it is pretty good. Not a whole lot going on today. I got the house to myself. We have a bunch of podcasting to do. It's Podcast Sunday. Yeah, we're recording three different episodes today. Yeah, it'd be a nice productive day. A main one and two bonuses. Uh, so this will be fun. Before we jump into the world that we are going to be immersed in for the next three to four episodes, uh, what else have you been up to? I kind of started watching King of the Hill, which nice, I know is nice. a show you've watched before. Yes. Um, it's just one that we avoided. Like we we didn't watch a lot of the more like grown up cartoon shows growing up. This mm-hmm. is not something like our family was really into. Right. So it's kind of been fun going back and rediscovering all this and like they're not all like South Park. Mm-hmm. Like King of the Hill is actually there's like some good lessons and stuff in there. It's very um it reminds me of Bob's Burgers a whole lot. Yeah, absolutely. King of the Hill is such a great show. Um, like, like a like a truly like heartwarming show in general. Hank, Hank and Bobby's relationship is cool. Yeah, it's fun watching Hank like not have the tools or the words to like deal with his son, but all his son wants is like his dad to love him. It's pretty funny. I think one of the good episodes that that shows that off is when they visit the Dallas Cowboys uh, training camp. Mm-hmm. Bobby's trying to bond with Hank over football, but Bobby doesn't really know anything about football. <laughs> um, and Hank is, you know, kind of like doing his best to to humor him a little bit. It's a great episode. Been a lot of that and then just busy with work. Obviously, that kind of thing. What about you? I've done a lot of reading for for making these episodes. Um, been watching a lot of baseball. Nice. Uh, the Brewers, Brewers are doing well. They're 15 and six. Finally have some consistent offense. They have some young guys who are playing really, really well. Their pitching's been on point. They're a fun team to watch right now. Cool. Yeah, the the Reds are not fun. They're what we thought they were. So <laughs> haven't watched a team in baseball. It's the point of the season right now where I'm just kind of thirsty for baseball, whether it's the Brewers or not. So I will kind of flip around and see, you know, if, if Fox has a game on or ESPN has a game on and I'll just watch it. That catch in that like Astros Yankees game that like, you know, in a couple months when football starts, you won't care about. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just really enjoying baseball. And like, honestly, the pitch clock probably has something to do with that. I, I know that this is like not an endless thing that's going to sit like it, it, it progresses at a normal pace now. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like it. I really like the pace of the of the games now. Yeah, I hate some of the results of the pitch clock, like as mm-hmm. far as it deciding important things. But I love the result of, you know, the game moving along. Yeah, it's something to get used to for sure. And like, I'm sure like they can tweak. I, I saw one proposition of, you know, turning off the pitch clock in the ninth inning or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so, some sort of tweak, so you can still get those those big dramatic moments that baseball is you know is really good for. Right. I've been doing a lot of that. Um, that's been that's been most of my time aside from aside from work. Nice. So we are going to jump into a series. Uh, this is going to be there's going to be three main feed episodes and then a bonus episode about the Spanish Armada of 1588. 
Let's do it. I had obviously been planning to do this for a while. Um, I was thinking originally that this would be like my birthday present to myself, <laughs> but obviously we're a little bit a little bit after that. But still, this is this is going to be a belated birthday present talking about this. So for anyone who who doesn't enjoy this, then you're saying that I can't have a fun birthday. <laughs> so right off the bat, before we jump into any of the details, a note on the terminology. Spanish Armada is a general term that could refer to any fleet assembled by Spain for a specific purpose, you know, in the early modern era. So you've got like a Spanish Armada of 1596, an Armada of 1597, with kind of different goals. Mm -hmm. And in just a more general sense, in in Spanish, Armada Española is just the literal name of the Spanish Navy. Oh, so I did not realize that, that that's what they still used. Yeah, it's it's not like a specific term to to right. like this. Whereas to an English speaker, you say the Spanish Armada, you're immediately thinking of one specific instance in history. Right. That's just the name of the navy. It's a bit like with not quite as many evil overtones. It's a bit like how the German Air Force is just called the Luftwaffe. Yeah, it's like it's just the name of it. That's just what it's called. Forget about the other stuff. <laughs> so main sources for this set of episodes, uh, there's quite a few. I've been researching this for quite some time. Uh, so I had a chance to read some some really cool books. Uh, and mainly those are Neil Hansen's The Confident Hope of a Miracle, David Howarth's The Voyage of the Armada, Colin Martin and Jeffrey Parker's The Spanish Armada, Garrett Mattingly's The Armada, <laughs> and Hugh Thomas's World Without End, Spain, Philip II, and the First Global Empire. Good for him for not using the word armada in the title. His is about Philip on a larger scale. So actually a relatively small portion of the book talks about the armada. Okay. That one has a lot of personal insight into Philip, as does the the David Howard, The Voyage of the Armada, because that is more from the Spanish side of things. Mainly in the third and the bonus episode, we'll talk about the army of Flanders mm -hmm. that Spain had in the Netherlands. And for a lot of that information, I used Jeffrey Parker's The Army of Flanders and the Spanish Road. I think that stuff's so interesting, um, because... You think it's just like Spain and England and like it truly is World War One level like complexity of like what other countries and places are involved. It's like a world war. The only reason we don't consider it that is that like half of the world is owned by one dude. Right. It doesn't quite have the same feel to it. Or is claimed to be owned by one dude, you know, all other things aside. So this is a massive episode. We got to start somewhere. So let's start with the two highest level figures involved. So one of the central figures, one of the driving forces, the driving force behind the Armada is the King of Spain, Felipe II. <laughs> we'll just call Philip II uh, in accordance with the usual English language practice. Philip has a kind of interesting life as a as a royal. Philip II became King of Spain in 1556 when he was 28. Although he'd been acting as regent of the Spanish Empire since 1543 when he was only 16. Um, and even before that, he'd been getting experience. Uh, he became the Duke of Milan at age 13 in 1540. Uh, and he was King of Naples uh, starting in 1554. His father was Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, Lord of the Netherlands, Archduke of Austria, and probably one of the most powerful single individuals in certainly in European history. Um, he's definitely up there in world history as well. So many titles. Like, it's just amazing how many different places. Yeah. And that's they're in theory in charge of. 
and that's actually one of the cool things about this uh, time. And that's one one of the things that makes it so confusing. Yes, you have all the intermarriage and inbreeding amongst these royal houses, but also the idea of like a nation that has a set territory isn't really a thing yet. Right. You know, all of these domains are attached to the person of the monarch. So like if you're the king of Spain, you know, and your mother is from Burgundy, it's like, hey, you also get that. But then the next king of Spain might not also have that depending on the situation. So it's very much a personal connection. Yeah, it's funny. These titles just get like traded around. And so Charles V, uh, Philip's father, he had actually divided up his empire when he entered his retirement phase, similar to like what the Roman Empire did in its later stages. So Charles had left Spain and the Netherlands and, and other stuff too uh, to Philip, while the Austrian Habsburg domains were left to his brother Ferdinand. So from this point on, you, know, you see this through like the Thirty Years' War, Spain, Spanish Empire, and the Austrian Habsburgs, they operate basically as allies, but they do have separate goals. Mm -hmm. They tend to help each other out, but not all the time. Um, so all things considered, Philip really had a lot to live up to. Quoting here from Colin Martin and Jeffrey Parker in The Spanish Armada. Charles V set no ordinary standards for his son to emulate. A successful statesman and soldier, an experienced traveler fluent in five languages, master of the regal gesture, an apposite phrase, a natural leader of men. It was a hard act to follow, and Philip's long-term apprenticeship in the art of government only served to heighten his awareness of the elusiveness of success and the disgrace of failure. Uh, so Philip's personality, he's, he's a central character. We'll talk about him plenty throughout this. We'll flesh out more of his, what made him tick. And sometimes it will be a lot more positively than others. But for now, we'll quote from David Howarth for just a little uh, about how Philip's mind worked. The brain he applied to God's problems and his own was quite remarkably slow. He dreaded quick decisions. It always took him days and sometimes years to make up his mind about anything. His people called him Philip the Prudent, and he made a rather virtue of his chronic hesitation. Time and I are one, he would say while he procrastinated, expecting, and sometimes rightly, that problems would disappear if he waited long enough. <laughs> I don't hate it. I don't hate it because like at work sometimes like when I'm teaching someone how to do like a task and like everything I do is very time sensitive, but like people get in a rush to make decisions and it's like, what? Don't make a decision until you have to sometimes like let mm -hmm. the problem develop because it does sometimes moderate or go away. And like, I, I know you always have to be, be careful looking at Royals in any time in history and, and trying to find similarities because it's like, they're not like you. Nothing about their lives is the same. Don't feel bad for them. But at the same time, I think there's a lot to relate to with Philip. I, I feel like if Philip had a modern office job, he, he is the kind who would let a two-minute response email sit for a week when he could have had this finished. Can you imagine the anxiety that's built up in that week of not answering that email? <laughs> right. There's some things in Philip's personality that at least at least I see. I'm like, oh, like I, I can understand like having all of this responsibility. I would probably do the same thing. I would probably also sit in my office for days at a time and and say, like, I can't do anything because I have to read all of these letters. So a few other significant details of Philip's governing style is going to loom pretty large in the story. Uh, first of all, Philip was not a delegator at all. 
Uh, he wanted the final say on every aspect of any plan, even something where he maybe couldn't offer any particular expertise. It's the Hitler method. Not a unique trait to Philip, certainly. Um, you know, things like naval tactics, the logistics of a cross-channel invasion, or really military affairs in general. Micromanaging, not an uncommon trait. Yeah, it's interesting In with like a good leader, you embrace the people that know what they're talking about and then make a decision based off of their decisions. Whereas like rulers who sometimes aren't viewed as great micromanage and tell those people what to do. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting how you use your professionals in those roles. We talked about Charles V and, you know, what a monstrous influence being his son probably had on Philip. Charles V was, you know, this famous, you know, victorious warrior, defender of, of the Catholic faith. This is when Protestant heresy is is flaming up all over Europe. And you can definitely see that, you know, Philip wanted to be seen in a similar fashion mm -hmm. that had to have had an impact on him wanting to do everything himself. My dad owned, you know, most of the world and he did it all on his own. Mm -hmm. So the other detail is more of a personal aspect, but it really did influence every part of his governing. And that's his religious piety. So there's this often repeated little factoid about Philip that, uh, out of the 42 books beside his bed, all but one was religious. To be fair, like, weren't most books religious at the time? Yeah, but also this is this is a time when you do start having uh, kind of like popular works of fiction. Mm -hmm. This is not too far before like Don Quixote is published. I mean, this isn't too far before the time that Shakespeare, uh, his, his plays are being put on. So you do have a level of like secular fiction. Mm hmm. But you are correct in that a ton of the books being published would have been religious. Hugh Thomas, he theorizes that that one exception was a copy of Amadis de Gala, which is like an early, it's considered a chivalric romance. It was really influential on Cervantes and writers of the time uh, when he was writing Don Quixote. That's actually given as Don Quixote's favorite book in Don Quixote. The stories that are inspiring Don Quixote to do all of these, you know, kind of insane things. That's the kind of stories that this would be. Uh, so quoting further about uh, Philip from the Spanish Armada, the worst kept secret in Europe by Delamar Jensen. There was, to be sure, a certain mesmeric mysticism in Philip's religious character. His commitment to the Armada enterprise was a reflection of his total faith in God whose will the king believed he was fulfilling. If the Armada project was indeed God's work, then he would prepare a way for it to be accomplished. This is not a stumbling of a somnambulist. It is the straightforward faith of a devotee. It is the kind of faith that would expect that God would make up for men's failings, to fill in the details of human attempts to carry out the divine will. A lot of words basically to say that you see this throughout his reign, and particularly in the Armada of Philip choosing a plan, basically just ignoring any of the flaws in it, saying that I am God's representative on Earth, so any plan that I make has to come directly from God, and so he'll basically make everything work out. Yeah, I'm starting to think that our boy might be a little bit of a narcissist. A little bit. Funny how growing up in that environment might create that. You grow up with the knowledge that you like you're going to be probably the most powerful man in the world. But what does that do to your brain? And I feel like there's still like an, like especially being so religious like 
there's still sort of that divine right of kings. Like you are the Lord's messenger on earth. Like I'm sure you're getting that kind of stuff, even if it's just peripherally put into what you're doing in your day to day. There's a lot of evidence to, to show that this faith of Phillips was authentic. Mm -hmm. He, he personally did have this really great devotion and what he would probably term humility. But I think to an outside observer saying anything I do is God's will. And so it has to work is, is probably more in the borderline level of like insanity. It's the shit that people say when they try bath salts for the (laughs) right. So the reign of Philip II is the Spanish empire at the height of its power and dominance in Europe and around the world. So Philip claimed dominion over, um, and I, and I know I'm leaving probably some stuff out here, but, uh, we're talking about Spain itself. So at this point, this is technically still the separate crowns of Castile, Aragon, and Navarre. Mm-hmm. He reigned as Philip II of Castile, Philip I of Aragon, and Philip IV of Navarre. That's so weird. Like- yeah. Um, so he ruled southern Italy as king of Naples. Uh, this included Sicily and Sardinia. Uh, Sardinia and the Balearic Islands were technically his because he was king of Aragon. Portions of northern Italy because he was the Duke of Milan. The region of Franche-Comte in eastern France. The Low Countries, so the Netherlands, modern Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, All of the Spanish possessions in the New World, so parts of the modern U.S., Mexico, Central America, South America, the Philippines, also over in the Pacific. Um, So that's a lot of stuff on its own. I think anytime we talk about stuff like this, it's always such a good reminder that like France or Germany is like a new concept Mm -hmm. in a way in, in Europe. Even things with like parts of Italy being ruled by, you know, the king of Spain, like Mm -hmm. we don't really, at least in America, you know, in our, the history we get, we don't talk about that stuff very much. Like in our minds, like Italy has just always existed. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff going on there. It gets more interesting in 1580. Uh, This is something we've talked about before. The king of Portugal was killed in battle in Morocco. He was succeeded by, I want to say it was his brother. His brother was a religious figure, and so he did not have children. And so that left the throne vacant when he died. So Philip, being a good neighbor, (laughs) steps in. He says, I will be king of Portugal also. Um, So this leads to the Iberian Union. I feel like if I was Portugal, I would always be nervous because like, you're not that big and you are fully surrounded by one of the base empires in history. Yeah, and Portugal's strength was very much its naval side. So that doesn't help you very much when you share this massive border with a world power like Spain. There is technically some fighting that goes on. Spain doesn't have too much trouble with this. And Philip becomes king of Portugal, giving him control over the Portuguese empire. Uh, That included Portugal itself, the Azores, coastal regions of India and Africa, uh, and also one of the big ones, Brazil. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you, you look at a map of Philip II's domains, and it's truly mind-bending uh, of how, how much stuff he's claiming ownership of. We, we had previously mentioned the Iberian Union in our episode on the San Felipe incident of 1596 mm-hmm. and the confusion that arose amongst the Japanese of, wait a second, you told us that Portugal and Spain were different. Right. But now you're telling us you got the same king. <laughs> we're going to crucify you. <laughs> Yeah, go back and listen to the San Felipe incident for us to talk about that in detail. Yeah, that was a really interesting story, like just an interesting time period. 
to, to look at. Yeah, the TLDR of that is the less you say in most situations, the better. <laughs> so on the other side of things, we'll have Queen Elizabeth I, uh, who'd been ruling England for about 30 years at this point. So Queen Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry VIII with Anne Boleyn. I like that most like major European conflicts boil down to uh, an English monarch being angry at some monarch on continental Europe, and then like everyone has to fight. Now it's everyone's problem. <laughs> so Elizabeth had something of an awkward history with Philip II. Philip had been married to Elizabeth's older half-sister Mary. Hmm. This is Bloody Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII with Catherine of Aragon, his first marriage. She had married Philip in 1554, and so Philip had technically been king of England for about four years until Mary died in 1558. This is like the disputed national championships that random colleges claim from like 1920. Uh, that's not a bad comparison. Yeah. Where, yeah, it'll be like Texas claims like a random championship from like 1923, and it's like, mm -hmm. okay. Mary was Catholic. That's one of the reasons that she comes down to us with this nickname, Bloody Mary, because that was a name given to her by her Protestant subjects. As since Mary was Catholic, had that marriage produced any children, the later history of England probably looks a lot different. Right, because like that truly would be the person who would be able to claim. That would have probably made England, England's adventure with Protestantism a historical aberration rather than like a key component of its history. Mm -hmm. So since Philip's title came just through his marriage, when Mary died, he also ceased to be king of England. But it behooves Spain to, to have England under their control. So mm -hmm. just to try and keep a hold on that, Philip then offered marriage to Elizabeth. <laughs> so that offer didn't really come to anything. It was probably never seriously entertained, but it, it was out there. Philip ultimately married Elizabeth of Valois, in the following year. Yes, she would be French, uh, based on that name. Uh, <laughs> she would be wife number two of an eventual four. Dang, he was able to churn through the wives and stay Catholic. He didn't have the best um, time. He, he had a, a lot of personal tragedy in his life with his wives and with his children. I do feel like living in like the 1500s is like your whole life is personal tragedy, like no matter what. Yeah. Like, like if it. it's that bad for someone who's the king of something, like what's it like for like just a dude? I mean, that's a good thing to keep in mind is all these all these royal families, you know, where even you know the king has to have 10 kids so that one of them will hopefully survive into adulthood. What is it like for, quote unquote, regular people? So England and Spain were actually on like relatively good diplomatic terms, at least mm -hmm. in the open for quite a while. And it wasn't until around 1580 that this relationship kind of went beyond the point of no return. Mm -hmm. England had been growing a lot more closely aligned with Protestants on the continent. And most notably, this was the rebellious provinces of the Netherlands that had risen against Spanish rule in uh, what we would ultimately come to know as the 80 years war. So not a quick and clean affair. Right. It's also around the time that Francis Drake is making a name for himself as a captain, as an admiral, if you ask the English, and as a pirate, if you ask the Spanish. <laughs> and the Spanish didn't really see him receiving any of the punishment that they thought he deserved. Interesting. So he completed his circumnavigation of the globe in September 1580. 
Spanish ambassador Bernardino de Mendoza demanded that he be punished for his raids on Spanish shipping and territory. Uh, instead, Elizabeth gave him a knighthood. That sounds about right. <laughs> this is when he becomes Sir Francis Drake. Elizabeth is a fascinating character. We, I, I think on the surface, if you haven't like read about her, her history, she still has this kind of aura of being like the classic English queen, the virgin queen. Mm-hmm. She's absolutely, it goes without saying for a monarch, but like Elizabeth is a pretty terrible person. Right. Um, both, both her, uh, her government policies and just her, her personal life. You kind of had to be at the time, but still like she, she seems exceptionally bad sometimes. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth loved her some plausible deniability. And her response to this was basically like, Hey, I can't control what a private citizen does with his own <laughs> ships. Um, you know, cause these are not, uh, there's no Royal Navy vessels here that he's using. Uh, right. This is just Francis Drake having an adventure. Um, so Elizabeth was happy to accept her cut of the plunder, but also she was able to somewhat technically say, I didn't tell him to do this. I am. I can't control what he does when he's halfway around the world. I'm getting like real, like billionaire vibes, which I guess they probably were like the billionaires of their times of like, Oh, wow, that's just so bad. You know, like, wish I could do something to stop that. To some extent, it would have been a double edged sword, like had the Spaniards ever successfully captured Francis Drake, Mm -hmm. because then Elizabeth doesn't really have any recourse to say, give him back. (laughs) Do not execute him and his whole crew. Right. They very easily could have just hanged him as a pirate and they probably would have. There's that aspect of it. But, you know, Drake was pretty good at what he did and Mm -hmm. uh, and avoided that. So although Drake has more name recognition now, an arguably more egregious breach of that cordial relationship had to do with the claimant to the Portuguese throne, Dom Antonio. So Dom Antonio was an illegitimate grandson of King Manuel I of Portugal. And so he lost out to Philip II in the succession struggle in 1580. Mm-hmm. Philip II had the tiebreaker there, basically. They're entering the playoffs and Philip gets the higher seed because Philip is a legitimate grandson of that same king. That is funny, like how much that matters at the time. He's got the points against tiebreaker <laughs> by being the legitimate grandson. Uh, so when Dom Antonio was defeated at the Battle of Alcantara outside of Lisbon, he fled to the Azores, uh, which are you know islands to the west of the Iberian Peninsula. And he set up kind of a government in exile on the island of Tercera. I did not realize that there was a Portuguese Taiwan. Sort of, for a time, yeah, that, that you could compare that. Although, like, back then, it was a lot harder to, you know, project power from this tiny Mm -hmm. little island. But he was there, not given up. (laughs) Uh, So he received support in that endeavor from France under the leadership of uh, Catherine de' Medici. I I just had a cursed thought. Is there, like, some return to tradition element of, like, Portuguese people now that are, like, weird, like, return to the monarchy people that, like, love this guy, like, this government in exile? Knowing what I know about... Spanish monarchism. I'd have to assume that there's probably an equivalent in Portugal. And so the answer is probably yes. That is one of the things with like all these old European countries. Like I there it exists in England and the UK too. I've seen it. Like these like people that unironically like want monarchy back. And it's like, no. <laughs> there are still a uh, House of Stuart legitimists <laughs> who who still who still advocate the heir of the Jacobite cause to be the true heir, uh, the true king of England. I think that that's the closest thing that like Europe and the UK have to 
sovereign citizens. That's like the, <laughs> Probably, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's like the European sovereign citizen. Is that like the opposite though? It's like, I, I must have a king over me. <laughs> sovereign and like, I need a sovereign over me. I need a sovereign citizen to, uh, to <laughs> kneel to. So Dom Antonio had that support from France because it was in France's best interest to destabilize Spain as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, His French supporting fleets were defeated at sea in 1582. Uh, He fled back to France and then ultimately England. Of course. Philip didn't take that very well because at this time, like England and Spain are still nominally allies. Mm -hmm. It's basically everyone trying to balance the equation, you know, France wants to keep England and Spain divided. Spain wants to keep England and France divided. Nobody wants a power block to develop against them. Mm -hmm. But this makes Philip pretty angry. As early as December 1581, Philip uh, made the first mention of building an armada para algunos efectos de nuestro servicio. Uh, Basically, to to do some things in our service. Uh, Being very oblique here in his references. He didn't have much of a plan yet, but he knew that he wanted to raise the stakes quite considerably and really throw the weight of his empire around. Mm -hmm. He was kind of sick of getting picked on by this little tiny island kingdom ruled by a woman. (laughs) Did not make him very happy. He's God's anointed. He's God's chosen. This should not be happening to him. Another figure who felt this way was Alvaro de Bazan, uh, the Marquis of Santa Cruz. Uh, This is the guy who had won those victories against Dom Antonio in the Azores. Uh, so quoting again from Delamar Jensen's The Spanish Armada, the worst kept secret in Europe. The time has not come to discuss this. Philip scribbled in the margin of the marquee letter and filed it away with thousands of other communications that were regularly accumulating from around the empire. In his reply to Santa Cruz, however, the king did note that he was ordering some provisions of biscuit from Italy and hiring ships in Vizcaya. There was no point in discouraging a man as eager and capable as Santa Cruz, even though he understood very little about international politics. Philip was ready to think about an enterprise against England, and to listen to proposals, but he was not ready to act yet. Santa Cruz is an interesting figure in that he's he's super successful, he's had this long career, he's, he's pretty old at this point. Mm-hmm. But he's been pretty integral to all of the success that Philip has had to this point. You know, as it mentions there, Santa Cruz isn't really a, a politics guy. He's just a point me at the enemy and I'll fight him. In some ways, some of the things I read, read about him, he reminds me a bit of Patton. Mm-hmm. In that, like, he's ready to fight whoever. He doesn't care. He might want to fight someone more than others, but he doesn't really care that much. It's almost that old stereotype of like, well, he's just a war fighter. Like, yeah, I'm not here to be political. I'm here to do the things that other people don't want to do. And and to the extent that he would say things that had the potential to cause diplomatic problems for Spain, mm-hmm. you know, if he's making these comments about wanting to invade England before we've officially said that's on the table, that causes problems. That makes things harder for us. So so just like Patton wanting to just march into Russia and keep going. That was a, the parallel I kind of thought of was him saying, well, we should arm the Germans and, and start fighting the Soviets right after World War II. <laughs> no breaks. Uh, so let's talk about Spain's finances. Hmm. Better now than they will be in the future. Still not great. <laughs> Running a global empire is expensive, and even you know stealing all the riches possible from the new world isn't going to change that. 
there's basically no amount of money that would have paid for all the things that needed to be paid for. Yeah, it's interesting that the Ottomans get like referred to as like the sick man of Europe in like the early 1900s, but like Spain did it first. Yeah, you see that a little bit later, and like, but even now, it's like you see, you see how this system is is inherently unsustainable, mm-hmm. and if you don't have, like, if you don't have a person with like an absolute, not just an iron will, but someone who knows how to manage, mm-hmm. this is never going to work. Right. Charles V, you know, kind of considered like he he did a decent job with doing all of that. Philip has some of the same skills. And then you kind of see later and later, you know, with Philip III, Philip IV, and then especially with Charles II, who was basically physically and mentally incapable of Mm -hmm. running the empire. You kind of see these things start to fall apart. So Philip was constantly at war during his reign. Um, He's basically never not at war somewhere. And so he's constantly in need of funds for the upkeep of that empire. Mutiny, absolutely not uncommon in Spain's armies. (laughs) <laughs> if their payment wasn't received on time, or even if they felt otherwise slighted or, you know, dishonored somehow, it was particularly common in the army of Flanders. Um, so we talked about the Dutch revolt a little bit. Spain has this very big army in Flanders that is just basically operating there the entire time. And and they're kind of one of the focal points of this. A lot of that money coming from the New World has to go directly to the army of Flanders. Most of the money in those treasure fleets coming from the new world is already earmarked somewhere before it even touches Spanish soil. There's very little liquidity, I guess you'd say. Yeah, it's interesting that the new world is basically a credit card for yeah. Spain. As these, these are coming over, he he already has, you know, he's he's thousands of ducats in debt to a lot of these banks he's been he's been borrowing from. He defaults on his loans, I think, like four times during his reign. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you kind of have this perception of like these vessels carrying back all this gold and then, you know, the rich people in Spain act like Scrooge McDuck and dive into like, you know, a <laughs> swimming pool of money. But this stuff was coming in and going out in the same motion. Like it's all being spent. Philip's basically spending money that's still in the ground in Peru. <laughs> uh, quoting here from Jeffrey Parker in The Army of Flanders and the Spanish Road. Between 1573 and 1607, over 45 mutinies occurred in the army of Flanders, almost half of them after 1596. They asked for better conditions of service if they remained in the army, or else permission to go home with just remuneration for their years of service. In that respect, at least, the mutiny was simply a collective protest, a strike intended to persuade the state to treat its employees more honestly, more humanely, and more respectfully. Yeah, this is a maritime podcast, so mutiny is kind of one of those words that sets off the code red alert. Uh-huh. Like this is the worst thing possible. And it really isn't in this case. The Army of Flanders, it is a standing army, but they don't have obviously a lot of the modern things you'd expect from an army. Mainly, there's no system of leave. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the Army of Flanders, you're there. You're like a space marine. You're kind of fighting and you're you're fighting for the king until you die. (laughs) And that's how you get your leave. So, yeah, there's those things. There's the issues, obviously, of payment. There's also the issues of food. You know, if they're unhappy with the quality or the amount of what they're getting, you know, a regiment might mutiny. 
Um, and that's the other thing is, you know, it talks about mutinies in the army of Flanders. This is never the entire army of Flanders. This is mm. always, you know, sections of it, you know, maybe a specific garrison, um, a specific section of it. Yeah. It's interesting that it's really seen more as transactional. Mm-hmm. It's just seen as like a legitimate negotiating tactic to be like, well, we'll mutiny. And that's very much a modern parallel is, you know, you think of somewhere like France having, you know, strike season at points throughout the year where this isn't. Uh, some crazy unforeseen thing. You know, I think in the United States, we have a a somewhat intentionally skewed vision of what a strike is. And other places, it's a much more natural. It's kind of like a kind of like a forest fire where it's a naturally occurring thing. You kind of need it to happen to reset things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what's happening here. This is a predictable event. And what's interesting, though, the Army of Flanders, these mutinies very often happened after some significant action had been fought. You know, a a specific town had been taken, a specific battle had been fought. And then after the fact, after they've done the job, the army or sections of the army will basically say, we're not doing anything else until you pay us. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting. You would normally think of that as, you know, refusing to do the work so that you will get paid to do the work. And this is kind of backwards in that regard. I've kind of read explanations of that as being a point of pride for the army. Mm-hmm. knowing what value they bring. If you want us to do this again, you'll pay us the money you owe us. Yeah, I guess like it makes sense, too, to be like, well, we put our life on the line fighting. We're not doing that again until you pay us. Like, you owe us now. Kind of forestalls any accusations of, like, laziness or cowardice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Army of Flanders will be important as part of the Armada plan that we'll get to later. So let's talk about planning the Armada. We mentioned that in 1581, Philip started making plans for this enormous undertaking of invading England, unseating the the evil heretical witch Elizabeth, and bringing the kingdom back into the arms of the true church. So despite attempts to keep this undertaking secret, or as secret as possible, that's not feasible. Um, right. Something this big is not going to stay secret. Through the early 1580s, the rest of Europe's already debating where the Armada is going to sail, when they're going to sail, what's their target, what's their goal. In some cases, even debating whether or not this big military buildup was an Armada at all, or whether this had some other function. Because for many people, uh, this was seen as, well, this is going to go to reinforce the Army of Flanders, stamp out this rebellion for good. Right. The surge, basically. (laughs) And uh, other people had different ideas. Venetian ambassador to Spain, Matteo Zane, wrote from Madrid in 1582, saying, The preparations of the war, which are being made in Spain, appear to be far greater than would be required for an expedition to the Azores. And so people say that His Majesty intends to attack England. But the undertaking is more difficult than generally supposed. And therefore, many people believe that His Majesty's intentions are directed to the defense of Flanders and the suppression of the French if they attempt to support Don Antonio. Some other rumors for this buildup were that Philip planned to build an army directed at uh, the Calvinist stronghold of Geneva, somewhere that Philip would have gladly burned to the ground with everyone in it. So like any Protestant place basically like was on the list of targets. He would have thrown a big party if he could have done that. So yeah, some people said, well, maybe he's maybe he's going to do this. Maybe he's going to deal with this problem. Possibly for an intervention in France. You know, at this point, France has its dynastic and religious wars uh, wars raging. You've got the 
the famous War of the Three Henrys going on. Maybe he was going to intervene there. He was a big supporter of Henry, Duke of Guise and the the Catholic League in France, um, who was kind of vying for a spot in the succession. Mm -hmm. So they thought maybe this was what it was for. The final straw for Philip uh, was the signing of the Treaty of Nonsuch between the English and the Dutch rebels in August of 1585. The Treaty of Nonsuch sounds like a Monty Python bit that got cut. This treaty made English support for the Dutch rebels open and explicit. So rather than these years of sort of covert support for it, very much like, you know, USA operating in like Central or South America somewhere. Yeah, of course, you're giving money to these people. Of course, you're giving them guns, but not officially. So yeah, instead of English troops fighting on a, quote, volunteer basis, uh, as they had been doing, this treaty sent 6,000 English infantry and 1,000 cavalry to the Low Countries, where they were actually given control of several rebel strongholds. So they basically took over and governed those explicitly and openly as the forces of England. Interesting. This is like full mask off support here. I, I mean, I guess a the parallel that is seems painfully obvious right now, it would be as if U.S. soldiers showed up tomorrow in, in Bakhmut in Ukraine, and suddenly this was U.S. territory. Um, these are legitimate U.S. troops that Russia is fighting, rather than like everyone knows that weapons and training and money is going to Ukraine, um, but it's not it's not a war. It's literally the things that all the conspiracy theory people like to say is happening. So Elizabeth also increased the amount of monetary support for the rebels and officially placed them under her protection. So yeah, this was huge for the Dutch rebels. They, they had a legit backer who was being open about this. And you know, this, this wasn't a, a secret little game that they were playing anymore. Yeah, and I would imagine like being under the protection of England at this point means a lot too, that if there's potential for English soldiers to get killed, it's a lot easier to convince England to maybe send more. So by 1586, Philip was soliciting some concrete invasion plans from his subordinates. Quoting from Jensen again here, the fact is there was no single armada plan. There were many, both consecutive and simultaneous. Uh, plans fell into two main categories. Those that required a preliminary invasion of Ireland, Wales, Southern England, or even Scotland to establish a foothold, which would then be reinforced. Uh, this is the plan that the Marquis of Santa Cruz favored. Mm -hmm. He'd had some recent experience in the Azores with amphibious operations. He felt like he could handle England. There were also those that called for a direct invasion from the Low Countries using the Army of Flanders for a quick strike across the Channel. As direct as possible, land, march on London, game over. So, like the original Operation Sea Lion. So yeah, this, this was the plan favored by the Duke of Parma. So that's another name that will loom large in this story. He's the commander of the Army of Flanders. Mm -hmm. He's one of the most famous soldiers in the world. And he's at the head of probably the best equipped and best trained army in the world at this time. So, of course, he's favoring the approach that cuts out all of the extra stuff, lets his boys run in and, and finish these things off as quick as possible. I am interested in like the option that involves like invading Ireland. Mm -hmm. Because like I, on one hand, I feel like the Irish wouldn't be super stoked to have the Spanish show up and say we're in charge. But on the other hand, like both Catholic, both hate the English, like mm -hmm. they have a lot going on that I think would be agreeable about. 
there's a lot of Spanish meddling in Ireland. You know, there's they, they've been in contact with different rebellious Irish Catholic lords, but the kind of the hard support never really materializes. Mm-hmm. Spain does this other places, too. They do this in Scotland where they kind of tease support for, hey, if you guys wanted to rise up against England, we'll we'll be there and we'll get you some money. We'll get you some guys, whatever. And that never really works out because Spain never really follows through. Right. You kind of lose people's trust. You told us if we revolted, you would uh, you'd land some troops here. And then, you know, that doesn't happen and they all get hanged. It's like the Kurds in Iraq. You could see using them kind of as a political football and then not giving any sort of tangible support. Yeah, it's just it is always amazing to see like things never change. Like Mm -hmm. all of these things have been going on forever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The invasion of Ireland at this point, England doesn't have more than a few thousand, you know, actual troops in Ireland. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some local militias and local lords who are ostensibly on their side. But, you know, if a Spanish invasion were to happen, who knows um, how that shakes out in Ireland. The next quote here is a little bit about uh, Parma's plan. Parma proposed sending a force of 30,500 troops on flat bottom river barges directly across the channel from Flanders to England during a single night. He would only need a fleet from Spain in case something went wrong or to decoy the English Navy. I feel like this is a kind of a classic, almost stereotypical like army attitude. Mm-hmm. We don't need the Navy. Let us take care of this. We can, we can do this. It involves water, but we don't need the Navy. You mentioned those flat bottom river barges. That becomes a big detail in the plan. Uh-huh. The English Channel is notoriously not as calm as a river. <laughs> so in contrast to this, the Marquis of Santa Cruz's plan called for 510 ships, which is like an unfathomable number of ships when we start talking about how many ships the Armada actually sails with. Forget Operation Sea Lion, they're doing Dunkirk. This is enormous, 510 ships. Um, Varying sizes from, you know, galleons to transports to small auxiliary craft. Uh, And he'd need 30,000 plus sailors to crew those. He's calling for nearly 64,000 soldiers. So this is infantry, cavalry, artillery, um, recruited from Spain, Italy, Germany, some of these being, you know, mercenary soldiers, some of them recruited from Philip's domains. Total cost of nearly 4 million ducats. I just looked up how many vessels were involved in the Normandy landings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and adjusted for inflation, this feels right. Uh, 7,000 ships in mm. the, the June 6th landings. Nice. But uh, yeah, you carry that inflation from this time period and yeah, you're probably about there. Kind of goes to show what we were saying about Santa Cruz in that he's kind of a fighter and nothing else. Uh huh. Give me 500 ships without really whether he probably did have a realistic estimate of whether or not that was feasible, but kind of asking for that is like, you're, you're not who's got 500 ships. Mm-hmm. No one has this. Um, he just wants what he wants so he can go fight. That would have a much longer operation time also, because if you're in, conducting this foothold invasion first, this drags everything out. That makes all the logistics more complicated. Um, so on hearing Santa Cruz's proposal, uh, Philip responded by saying, I will look into it all to see where there might be a place for it. And I will advise you the decision I make when I make it. <laughs> the very classic Philip answer there. Uh-huh. And something, I, I don't think I mentioned this before, but another little, 
you could call it a quirk of Philip's personality. We talked about him being very deliberate, uh, prudent, I guess, if you wanted to uh, give him a compliment. For this reason, Philip almost entirely refused to meet with people face to face. He conducted all his business via letter. And like, that's normal, of course, you know, you don't have phones or Skype at this point. But like, I'm talking all of his business. Even if people visited him at the Escorial, his palace, literally in the same building, he would refuse to meet with them and he would write them a letter and he would expect them to do the same for him. Uh, this is great for uh, for posterity in terms of recording what were people saying to Philip, what were Philip's thoughts, because he scribbles a lot of things in the margins, his reaction emojis, basically. It's the millennial urge to avoid every possible phone call and send an email. I totally get it. There's so much to connect with Philip on. He would have been terrified to make a phone call to order a pizza. I will look for an, like an online thing for 30 minutes before <laughs> doing a two minute phone call. This is another reason where like Philip is this kind of like cold, distant figure because no one gets to talk to him face to face except for like his very closest advisors. So we talked at the beginning about how Philip famously struggled to make decisions. So in this case, he just didn't. Uh, instead, he decided to combine elements that he liked from both plans into Philip's super mega master invasion plan. This, this feels very Elon Musky. It's not that Philip doesn't listen to people. It's just he kind of takes all the ideas and mashes them into one and says that they're his. Yeah, that that, uh, that that is what goes on there. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea may have been planted in his head by Don Juan de Zuniga, who was one of Philip's closest advisors. And so one of the only people who got to talk to him for real. Zuniga's original plan called for the Armada to stop first in Ireland, allowing troops to establish a foothold, then setting sail for the English Channel, where they would escort the Duke of Parma's army across to England. The final plan for the Armada would basically be this, minus the stopover in Ireland. So that part got cut out. That's like the best part. Parma, as we have said, among many others, he thought the Irish detour was a terrible idea. He's basically scrambling for all the money and resources he can get for his army, and he thinks that this would just be a massive waste of resources if the goal is actually conquering England. Uh, so it won't say too much more about the uh, intricacies of the planning at this moment. Let's just say uh, it might look good on paper to Philip, who is not a military or a naval guy. There's a pretty enormous flaw that's going to become apparent once the action's underway. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with the challenge of rendezvousing at sea in the face of a hostile fleet. Not advisable. <laughs> not the kind of thing that would have concerned Philip, because he's going to be operating under the assumption that something's going to take the English fleet off the table. Um, there's yeah. going to be an adverse wind. There's going to be a storm. We're going to get there before they know what happens. God will provide some sort of out for us here, and it's all going to be fine. That, that's not good when your plan hinges on like, well, this will just happen. This is actually the source of the, the title of a lot of literature around the Armada. Uh, that Neil Hansen book is called The Confident Hope of a Miracle. And that is a quote from one of the Spanish officers who kind of is, I guess I've always thought this was a tongue in cheek comment. He kind of says, well, all we'll have to do is make it across uh, the channel, rendezvous with the Duke of Parma, avoid the English fleet or defeat them in combat and land troops successfully. That's all we've got to do. <laughs> And he says, we're, we're sailing in the confident hope of a miracle. And that's where that, that phrase comes from. So Yeah, that, that's not great. So Philip did hold out some hope uh, of a resolution to this 
that didn't involve a costly and risky invasion. Some of these had to do with the imprisoned Mary Stuarts. This is Mary, Queen of Scots. Although her being beheaded in February 1587 kind of took that off the table. Yeah, that would make it difficult. It also further aggravated Catholic distaste for Elizabeth. (laughs) The hope was that if Elizabeth could be somehow removed from the throne, Mary Stuart could take the throne, possibly with the Duke of Parma as her consort to solidify Spanish influence. This was the era where uh, heads of states and politicians were being assassinated, you know, left and right. William the Silent in the Netherlands was assassinated. Uh, Henry III of France will be assassinated. Henry IV of France will be assassinated. This is a a pretty normal thing. Yeah, I feel like trying to create a scenario that Elizabeth is assassinated is like the least crazy part of all of this, considering the time. That would have been like the probably the standard way of going about this. You know, there's you've got this other contender for the throne who has a pretty good claim, Mary Stuart. Um, if we can just get Elizabeth out of the way somehow, probably could have filled that void. So another major event happened in April 1587, one that would make it impossible for Philip to delay any further. And this was Francis Drake's infamous raid on the Spanish port of Cadiz. Uh, so this has gone down in history as the time when Drake, quote, singed the king of Spain's beard. <laughs> and it just added to Drake's, you know, already diabolical reputation among the Spanish. Drake knew, kind of like everyone in Europe, that Philip's assembling this massive armada and that it's it's probably coming for England. But he also knew that its components were still spread out and trying to get to the assembly point. So this is the time to attack if you want to try and spoil some of this. Mm-hmm. And that's really all this is. You can kind of see it as a spoiling attack to maybe delay. So there were about 60 ships assembled in the harbor of Cadiz on April 29th when Drake's fleet struck. English vessels entered the harbor flying no identifying colors, and they proceeded over the next 24 hours to destroy or capture 24 Spanish ships. We have this idea of a a raid being this like lightning uh, event, but they're there for like a day, burning stuff and sinking things. I I didn't realize what all this like raid entailed. I had always, when I'm hearing about it, kind of assumed it was more like a the Doolittle raid after Pearl Harbor, or it was more Mm -hmm. like, you know tactically didn't really achieve anything, but like kind of symbolically and strategically was like, mm-hmm. we can do this too. And in a way, that's what it does. It even, I mean, cause that uh, singeing the King of Spain's beard, that is Drake's words. And you can see in that description of it, even he knows this is not like a decisive victory. He knows this isn't going to prevent the Armada. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to maybe annoy Philip a little bit. It's going to delay some things, but by and large, it is just showing Look what the English can do. We sailed into your main port, aside from Lisbon. We sailed right in. We hung out for a day, and we burned you know, 24 to 35 of your ships. Um, look what we can do, and you can't stop us. Um, so in addition to the ships trying to delay the armada, equally important was all of the food and supplies that went down along with the ships. Hmm. And were it not for the arrival of Spanish militia under the Duke of Medina Sidonia, Drake possibly could have entered the inner harbor and captured the town of Cadiz itself. (laughs) That would be so embarrassing to the crown. Yeah. Um, The reorganized town defense was able to force Drake out and cause some minor damage to uh, the Golden Lion, uh, one of his vessels. So upon hearing of the raid, Philip commented, The damage it committed there was not great. 
but the daring of the attempt was so. This wasn't major damage, this wasn't huge, but the fact that he was able to do this, or that he thought he was able to do this, is a problem. I actually love the idea, though, being like, oh, uh, this is just really problematic damage. So that just happened. <laughs> so Drake then made for the Portuguese coast, where he actually like seizes a castle and hangs out for a while, raiding ships. Ultimately, they capture the Carrick Sao Felipe along with her cargo, and they tow her into Plymouth on the 7th of July. I feel like Francis Drake might almost deserve a Lions Led by Donkeys episode at some point. He does some pretty crazy stuff during his during his career. Yeah, I mean, he, he's he's a fascinating figure of the time, and like he's the most famous name from the time among some other pretty crazy, daring people. Um, yeah, he gets up to some stuff. So the raid on Cadiz was obviously it was an embarrassment for Spain, but it was also kind of a kick in the pants to get things rolling for the Armada. Further delays. There's not just Drake, you know, there's Hawkins and Frobisher and all these other captains. If this armada doesn't get itself together, it's going to get picked apart. Because again, if they can sail into Cadiz and do this, they can sail into almost any Spanish harbor and do this. Uh, So Drake claimed to have sunk, captured, or burned 37 ships, but he was aware that his raid wouldn't cripple the armada. He wrote to Francis Walsingham. uh, This is the same letter where he talks about singeing Philip's beard with his advice for the defense of the realm. Uh, Drake wrote, I assure your honor, the like preparation was never heard of nor known as the King of Spain has and daily makes to invade England, which, if they be not impeached before they join, will be very perilous. This service, which by God's sufferance we have done, will breed some alterations, but all possible preparations for defense are very expedient. I dare not almost write of the great forces we hear the King of Spain has. Prepare in England strongly, and mostly by sea. So he's writing that to Francis Walsingham. Walsingham is one of Elizabeth's closest advisors. Technically, he's her secretary, like her top secretary. Mm -hmm. uh, But he is, in reality, and he's remembered as her spy master. So anything intelligence-wise, it's all coming back to Walsingham. Actually, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, had she'd been imprisoned for a long time. And Walsingham basically basically committed entrapment um, <laughs> to get her to confess in writing to what sh- what her plans were. Um, he made this whole plan of smuggling them in uh, in. I forget what kind of barrels they were. And so one of her maids tells Mary, like, hey, we can use this to communicate. That whole plan had been devised by Walsingham mm-hmm. just to get her to write something down. So he was a dastardly little dude, uh, Walsingham. <laughs> So the Armada was slowly coming together at Lisbon, which is probably the most well-defended port in all of Europe at the time. Probably not going to be a repeat of Cadiz here. To lead the Armada, Philip went with the obvious choice, the Marquis of Santa Cruz. So in terms of experience on the big stage, you really could not have had a better candidate for something this massive. Mm -hmm. We mentioned Santa Cruz's victory in the Azores, but he had this 50-year career. He'd been present at so many of these big names from the time. He'd been there at the relief of the Siege of Malta, uh, the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, one of the most famous naval battles in history, the conquest of Tunis in 1573, and a bunch of other things. Between that military experience and his social rank, you couldn't have found a better guy for this job. So, of course, on April 9th, 1588, the Marquis of Santa Cruz died of typhus. (laughs) Whoops. 
Uh, around this time, there's just over 100 ships assembled at Lisbon. A lot of them are not in very good shape. Because of the delays and the large numbers of sailors and troops assembled, rations are already running out and going bad. It's not good. Because th- this is being assembled so piecemeal, you've got guys you know, on these ships for months before there even is any chance of going anywhere. From mid-January to mid-February of 1588, about 2,600 troops died. One of these was Santa Cruz, dying during an outbreak of typhus. Quoting here from Martin and Parker's The Spanish Armada, He was little mourned, according to a Lisbon chronicler. The Marquis had been proud, avaricious, and cruel, so that although he was worth over half a million ducats, only four people were prepared to accompany (laughs) his coffin to the tomb, and his death was regretted by no one. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Also, take that with a grain of salt. Like, he was definitely not a likable person. That is also someone from Lisbon who is writing this someone who has an understandable axe to grind with the Marquis of Santa Cruz. I feel like with that much money flowing around, like there were some hangers on. Everybody's hoping to get their slice. Yeah, all of his all of his accolades and things like that, as hey, we talked about Elon Musk already, all the money in the world won't make you likable. Um, and this might be another case of that. Fair, fair warning with that. That is a Portuguese chronicler <laughs> writing about him. Um, so you're probably not going to get a fair assessment there. To replace Santa Cruz, Philip really needed someone who had a high enough social rank so as not to offend any of the experienced officers who'd be placed under him. Um, Spanish military at this time is all about your social rank, very little about your actual exploits. It was kind of just like lightning striking when you happened to get someone like the Marquis of Santa Cruz, who was legitimately Mm -hmm. good at what he did and had the rank to, to get into that position. Also, another thing here that you'll see throughout the armada in general, everything is kind of flipped on the armada side. Mm-hmm. Um, the army uh, leaders, the army officers and the, you know, the, the regular army troops are definitely seen as superior to anyone who's involved with the actual sailing. Um, so on all these ships, the commander of the troops on board is going to be superior to the actual captain of the ship. Sailors are basically treated as second class citizens on board. That's not good. And so all of these people in charge of the Armada, a relatively small number of them have actual naval command experience. Some of them do, and they're very, very good. Um, mm-hmm. When we talk about uh, Recalde later, he's, he's one example of that. The Flores cousins both have experience here. But a lot of these commanders are there literally because of their status rather than any meritorious qualifications. So Philip settled on Alonso Perez de Guzman, the <laughs> Duke of Medina Sidonia. This is the same guy who had sort of saved the day at Cadiz, um, okay. arriving with some militia to drive off Drake. So he had like a small amount of military experience. He had also participated in the conquest of Portugal. So he wasn't totally unfamiliar with military stuff, um, kind of like any nobleman of the day. It was kind of an expectation uh, that you right. be involved with this. And he had already been at a lower level involved with the administrative aspects of the Armada. So he wasn't new to this project. Some of the earlier sources really make fun of the choice of Medina Sidonia, saying uh, Philip didn't know what he was doing. Medina Sidonia was this hapless idiot. Later, writing about Medina Sidonia is a little bit more kind, kind of seeing that what the Armada needed was an administrator. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of military guys here that as long as he's taking their advice, not an issue. 
What they needed right. was a guy who could organize all the logistics. And Medina Sidonia was not a terrible choice for that. Yeah, it's funny. Like, it's cliche at this point, but like logistics is truly what wins mm-hmm. conflicts. And kind of more importantly for the Armada, he was one of the highest ranking nobles in Spain. That's kind of what the Armada needed was someone that everyone could be under and mm-hmm. and not get offended that, hey, who is this guy you put in charge of me? So Medina Sidonia absolutely 100% did not want this job. <laughs> he received the letter notifying him, A, that the Marquis of Santa Cruz was dead, and B, congratulations, you get his job. This letter was from Don Juan de Idiaques. This is one of uh, another one of uh, Philip's close advisors. When he received this letter, he immediately sat down to write a very long, very self-deprecating letter uh, in response, listing the various reasons that he would be a terrible choice. <laughs> I first humbly thank his majesty for having thought of me for such a great task. <laughs> and I wish I had the talents and strength it requires. But, sir. I have no health for this sea. I know from the small experiences I have had afloat that I am always seasick and catch cold. Besides this, I am in such need that when I go to Madrid, I had to borrow money for my journey. My house owes 900,000 ducats, and I am therefore quite unable to accept the command. I have not a penny I can spend on the expedition. Apart from this, Neither my conscience nor my duty will allow me to take this fleet. The fleet is so great, and the undertaking is so important, that it would be wrong for a person like myself, with no experience of seafaring or war, to take charge of it. So, sir, in the interest of His Majesty's service, and for the love I bear him, I submit to you for communication to him that I possess neither aptitude, ability, health, nor fortune for the expedition. The lack of any of these qualities would be enough to excuse me, and much more the lack of them all, which is the case with me at present. He really doesn't want that job. This always reminds me of the um, of the Phil Oaks song, uh-huh. Draft Dodger Rag. That is uh-huh. like what he's doing here. I've got a dislocated disc and a racked up back. I'm allergic <laughs> to flowers and bugs. This is a, a very long-winded letter, and it's it's that. It's just him saying all the reasons that this is a terrible idea. Some people read this cynically as like, oh, he's trying to look humble so that it seems like a good choice. But like, it seems quite legitimate that he did not want to do this. And some people, the cynic readers of this, also think sometimes that he didn't want to participate in the Armada. That doesn't really make any sense because he was already involved. He was already going to be part of the Armada. He just really did not want the responsibility. Like in some ways, it's almost the person that I want to actually be in charge of something, though, is the person Mm -hmm. that isn't like, yep, I know how to do all these things. Yeah, you hear that a lot, like people talking about the presidency, like your, your first qualification for being president is that you shouldn't want to do it. Right. Kind of that idea here of Philip has made his decision. Nothing that Medina Sidonia says is going to change his mind. And Medina Sidonia probably knows that. But probably for him, very important to commit all of this to writing so that (laughs) when this all goes pear shaped, I told you so, basically, I told (laughs) you that I would mess this up. So all protests aside, Phillips unmoved. Medina Sidonia is stuck. 
in command of this enormous armada that he absolutely does not want to be in charge of. And with that, we're going to end part one of the Spanish Armada, and we'll be back next week with part two, where the Armada will set sail and run into some problems. Uh, With that, I guess we'll wrap up here, and I'll just say thank you for listening to part one. This is a long part one. We know that. And we will uh, we will just talk to you next week.